This is the fourth Sunday of Easter, and every fourth Sunday of Easter, uh, we celebrate something called Good Shepherd Sunday, because the focus usually in the gospel is on Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Over the last uh, three or four years at St. Luke's and in most Episcopal churches now, we're reading from what is known as the Revised Common Lectionary. And so from this lectionary, we have a broader range of choices than we did in former lectionaries, even though they remain on a three-year cycle. Uh, there's uh, an, a um, point of view being uh, advanced in the Revised Common Lectionary, which is that it might be nice to hear a little more from individuals or voices that we did not hear quite as much from in uh, previous lectionaries. And I mentioned this at the beginning because when I begin to preach on the reading from the book of Acts, we're going to have one of those readings for this Sunday. The image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd or the Christ as the Good Shepherd was the dominant artistic depiction of Jesus, certainly for about the four, first 400 years of Christian history. When I was uh, in seminary, 20 of us got a scholarship to study in Rome for six weeks from the Episcopal Church Foundation. And we lived in a pensione right across the street from Santa Sabina Church, which is now run by the Dominicans. Santa Sabina is right next door to the Circus Maximus, you know, where Ben-Hur rode his chariot and all of that went on. And uh, I still remember the address of the Pansione, Clivo de Publici numero due. In any case, on the door at Santa Sabina Church is the depiction of the earliest uh, picture of Jesus on the cross. And it dates from about the fifth or the sixth century. So it's somewhat later than Christ as the Good Shepherd. We went up to Ravenna and looked at all the mosaics in Ravenna, and you could see, of course, uh, the image of Christ as the Good Shepherd all over the place up there. So it was a dominant uh, picture. It's interesting because I expect that what they were trying to put forward was the pastoral aspect of the Savior's words and works, the idea of the nurturing, caring aspect of the shepherd. In the ancient Near East, shepherds lead their flocks, not like we do, and drive them. And so there's some element of leadership involved. The interesting thing, which I will talk a little bit more about in a few minutes, is that shepherds during the time of Jesus were some of the worst people around. If there was going to be anything resembling organized crime in the ancient Near East, you could generally find a group of shepherds wandering around in the villages who were in some way involved in things probably that they should not have been. So they were not held in very high regard. And in that way, it seems something of a mystery that we would wish to elevate the image of the good shepherd as one of uh, the important images of the Savior. I think it has something to do with the, right, the, the gospel writers, particularly St. Luke, 
who was uh, talking about shepherds a fair amount and wished to advance the view or to make the readership, listenership aware that God chooses people that are unexpected to fulfill his purposes. And so the idea that it is the shepherds who see the star, the shepherds bring the news of Jesus' birth, the shepherds figure prominently in the infancy narratives uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, means that this idea was being put forward that God's saving work is now being brought to everyone, even those on the lowest plane of the social rung of the social ladder. Shepherds and fishermen own no property and were not considered to be very reliable individuals in the ancient Near East, and yet they figure prominently in the gospel witness. This morning I want to preach on the reading from Acts, on the reading from the book of Revelation, and on the gospel and see if they might tell us something about what's beginning to happen during the great 50 days of Easter when we listen to the history of salvation. The great 50 days of Easter introduced to us the three great theological themes of God's light, God's life, and God's love. And we begin today reading readings that are not resurrection appearances, but are the story of how now we may reflect on the transfer of God's light, God's life, and God's love to us, the people of God. This will have its full um, force and effect on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down and the people of God become both the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit of God and the fiduciaries or stewards of, of the Holy Spirit of God, the empowerment to do God's work in the world. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, understood both as personal, internal, and as a corporate energy that is part of the working of people together to seek to know God's purpose for them and for the world. So in the book of Acts... Today we read about one of these figures that has not been mentioned as much in past lectionaries and that is Tabitha or Dorcas in Greek. Peter is in a port town called Lydda and some disciples come to him and say that a prominent woman in their Christian community in Joppa has died. Joppa is 35 miles west of Jerusalem and today is a suburb of Tel Aviv. So that'll sort of place it for you. Peter goes to Joppa and to cut to the chase, he raises Tabitha from the dead. Now in this story, we have some things happening which uh, focus on what I say over and over again about it's important what the Bible means, not just what the Bible says. And so we read about Tabitha slash Dorcas, who is a prominent and well-to-do woman who is a philanthropist 
and she helps a lot of widows with her own money, not the church's money, and she is a gifted seamstress. And during the course of this process of Peter raising her from the dead, many of the women who have been the recipients of her finely sewn clothes bring them for him to see. Now, here's the thing about the inside baseball here. In this text of the Greek, Tabitha is referred to as a matheritra, matheritria, which means a woman disciple. It's the only place this word appears in the whole of the New Testament. How do people know this stuff? Well, I have a book I had in seminary called Sabe Kubo's the, the, the uh, Theological Word Book of the New Testament or something like the Greek word, but I can't remember the exact name. It tells you every Greek word that's been used in the New Testament and how many times. Who would want to do such a thing? I have no idea, but it is helpful because it gives you some idea about how terms were used frequently or not. And this is an infrequent term and sort of surprising for Luke to use. Gail O'Day, I think who teaches at the Graduate Theological Union, she's a biblical scholar, uh, she says, Dorcas is the proper society matron doing works of charity and sewing clothes for the less fortunate. One has to wonder, however, why when men take care of widows, Luke calls it ministry. But when Tabitha Dorcas performs the same services, Luke calls it good works. And you know what? Here's what we're beginning to see. I'm mentioning this because if you wonder whether or not people are being somewhat overweening in 2010 in the church's life, both about language and about who does ministry and all of these kinds of things, we begin to see these processes at work now in the New Testament. Luke, perhaps more than any other gospel writer, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts, seeks to bring to the front of his gospel portrayal and the work of the early church the fact that ministry was done by everyone, men and women. And yet this is a passage where we begin to see Luke doing something that may be distancing himself from an awkward reality that the post-resurrection church had to face. And this was that it was the women who were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. It's an, it is an incontrovertible fact. There's no way that in the gospel witness you couldn't say this or mention this. But out of fear of uh, the views of the ancient Near East, we begin to see some distance being made between the work of women and the work of men. So Dorcas becomes today a woman disciple. I'm just leaving it there at the group level. You can decide to do with that what you wish. But remember, what Luke is at pains to show is that uh, this is the work of the whole people of God. And it is also clear from the biblical witness 
that there were a number of prosperous women, widows, who funded the work of the early church in many places. My own view is that they funded Jesus' ministry, that he had a lot of well-to-do widows who helped him out financially. Now, this is 2010, and I know where people might want to go with this, but we're not going there, okay? I mean that it is just interesting to see that uh, this resonates with everybody, not just uh, men. In the reading from Revelation, I'm going to say every time I preach about Revelation during the great 50 days this year, all of the people who first read it or heard it understood what it meant. They understood what the symbolism meant. They understood the apocalyptic language and what, who and what was being referred to in that part of the ancient Near East. There is no secret code inside the book of Revelation. Don't you believe that for a moment? The book of Revelation was something that people... You know, I realized this this week two, for two reasons. First of all, uh, most of us are so completely detached from a way of looking at the world in terms of uh, mythology, in terms of the story, in terms of narrative, in terms of all of these different kinds of things, that it is not possible for us to think or understand in any other way but sort of a factual progression of events in historical terms. I took a class on Thursday at St. Andrew's Church from a man named Alexander Shia, who is a first-generation Lebanese-American. He was born in this country in Birmingham, Alabama. His family, his parents, and his grandmother came from Lebanon and moved here, and Alexander and his brothers and sisters were born here. He grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, in a Lebanese ghetto that was like living in a village in Lebanon, because in Birmingham, Alabama, you're not going to let these Lebanese people just drive around all over the city when they want to. You know, we don't, we have our section, and we stay there. In 1958, his grandmother's house was burnt to the ground. He remembers, as a kid, his grandmother, who could neither read or write, singing him to sleep by heart, uh, re singing the Gospels in Aramaic. He was a Maronite, that, you know, Lebanese, they're Maronite Christians, and their liturgy uh, is in Aramaic. So he grew up with this, but he also grew up, he said, with circular logic, with ways of thinking about stories and the way you, you, you understand them that differ very considerably from the way Western people do this. And when he first went to Notre Dame as a freshman, he was absolutely at sea because he just wasn't raised to think this way. He was saying to the people in the class, I am not speaking to you about a preferable way of thinking, merely that there are different ways to think about things. 
And so reading and understanding the Gospels in a certain way by virtue of how he grew up uh, was important. Here's the most remarkable thing about this story. His grandmother had them for dinner every Sunday. And unless you were out of town, you were there. And so in the course of the dinner, she would ask the children, um, what was in the gospel this Sunday at church? And it would be the story of Nicodemus, let's say. And so she would point at one of the, to one of the kids and say, okay, this week you're Nicodemus. What are you going to do? Here's a woman who can't read and write from some village in Lebanon who is teaching these children the Ignatian method. You know, St. Ignatius Loyola, spiritual exercises, put yourself in the scene. Figure out as you do that and decide who you are in the scene. How are you going to join Christ in his work? I was just amazed. I was just amazed. The book of Revelation was completely understandable by the people who heard it and read it the first time. And today, we have more of these liturgical fragments we read last week, probably from some of the earliest Easter liturgies uh, in Christianity. So there are hymns and fragments of hymns and liturgical sentences in here. This is the reading we read, or one of them, on All Saints Day about the martyrs who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It is in this lectionary for Good Shepherd Sunday because Jesus is both the Lamb and the Shepherd in this reading. And if we understand him as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity, that means that we both become self-giving in our generosity towards others, and we exercise leadership as the Good Shepherd by getting out in front. But perhaps the most compelling, if not for sentimental reasons, but for real profound pastoral reasons is the famous line in this reading. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that means if you're suffering and if you're facing adversity and if you're facing challenges and if you are up against it through grief God will wipe away every tear from your eye. It is a way of saying God never leaves you. And last week we talked about the abiding presence of God. And this is yet another reading about how God's light, God's life, and God's love are present always to us even in the midst of great difficulties, even in the midst of tribulation and suffering, which the book of Revelation talks a lot about. In the reading from the Gospel today, we have a version of the Good Shepherd story. It's sort of mentioned tangentially. But we have some things where about Jesus being engaged in a controversy with 
the uh, Jewish leadership, and they're pressing him to have him tell them whether he's the Messiah or not. And, of course, Jesus uh, says something that has been, in my view, misunderstood for a long time. But you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. If you were in, you'd get it, and you're not. Now, there are some Christian preachers who use this as a vehicle to say, you know what, there are a lot of people that are out, and it's too bad for them. And it's the ins that count. Now, all through the great 50 days of Easter thus far, we've been talking about the processes of God at work. When Thomas wouldn't believe Jesus, Jesus says to Thomas, Do you believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have come to believe and have not seen and when I hear come to believe, I understand that to involve the processes of coming to understand God's purposes for you in a deeper and fuller way. So we can't mean those who do not believe or belong are forever going to be in that condition. The more important passage or line in this gospel is at the very end where Jesus says, the Father and I are one. That Jesus was in his emotional, mental, and spiritual states absolutely aligned with the purposes of God for him. The people who wrote John's Gospel said, if, Jesus, if, if God were walking around on the earth, this is who he would be like. But those eyewitnesses who have seen and heard him have learned something. And what they learned was that when he says the Father and I are one, he means not just himself, but that through understanding his words and works, through understanding Jesus as the template, you and I too can align our emotional, mental, and spiritual states with the purposes of God in our lives. And to understand that this will make us uh, relationally more healthy and also more prepared to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis in big and small ways. So this gospel, the Good Shepherd gospel, is about right relationship. How do you understand the giving of self and the right kind of self-regard? How you exercise leadership? how you commend the practical wisdom that you have learned over your life, wisdom being understood in this case as the accumulated response to adversity. And how are you able to share this with other people? That's the best kind of evangelism there is. And someday somebody's going to say to you, how do I get what you have? and you'll be able to tell them. So this week, 
Think about your pastoral skills. Think about getting out in front and leading. Thinking about where it may be important to engage in a little self-giving. And if you're going through a bad patch, or even if you're not, remember that God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Amen.